From Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal, and this is the Vine Pair Podcast. And joining me once again on the podcast is Master Sommelier Evan Goldstein, the president of Full Circle Wine Solutions and Master of the World. Evan, you're one of our uh, more frequent recurring guests at this point. Welcome back. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm delighted to hear I'm a, a, a frequent recurring guest with you guys. It's a treat to always be on your program. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so... Just for the sake of people listening to this, we're going to be talking about Alentejo, a wine region in Portugal. And if you haven't listened to the previous episodes that you and I have done on the topic, we'll link them in the show description. Encourage you to go in and listen because there will be, of course, great information in each of those that we don't really cover here for the sake of those of you who have already listened to both and want to get more into this fantastic region. But for those who have not done their homework, have not listened. Evan, can you kind of give us a little bit of a background on the region? Where are we in Portugal? What What's going on here? Uh, absolutely. No, it's always important to give everybody a primer. And for those of you for whom this is old hat, you can run out and get a cup of coffee or a glass of wine or whatever it is that you need to get. But I think it's important just to really, before we even hit Alentejo, Zach, just give people a sense of Portugal. Portugal obviously sure. sits in the Iberian Peninsula, southwest of Europe. Uh, it's approximately 575 miles long, 138 miles wide, which makes it roughly the landmass size of about Indiana or Maine. And despite the fact that it's not particularly big, that's relatively diminutive by European standards, nevertheless, it is the eighth largest vineyard acreage in the world, uh, just two clicks behind us at number six and 11th in total wine production. So you can imagine there are grape vines absolutely everywhere. And Alentejo specifically is a big part of that. So Alentejo is located in the southern part of Portugal, uh, primarily in the southern eastern part of Portugal with a lot with the um, eastern part actually abutting Spain. But the western part, as you sort of move into the southern area and hit west, actually touches the water. There's a coastal Alentejo as well. It envelops approximately a third of the country's land mass, yet only 10% of the entire population. So it's pretty sparse and in and of itself is about the same size as Massachusetts. Um, It's famous for its grapes and wines, as we'll talk about in a little bit. But some of the other great gifts that Alentejo has provided us over the years, it's one of the largest sources of cork in the world, mm-hmm. which is not only uh, mission critical for wine bottles, but also for insulation, for cork boards, for all sorts shoes, uh, all sorts of other things. Um, it is the original home of the Porco Preto or the black hoofed pig, which the Spanish have um, uh, claimed as their own, but originally came from Portugal and provides us, of course, with great jamón ibérico in Spain and, and great um, dry cured ham in, in uh, Portugal as well course, is the meat. And then things like amphora wines, also known as talia wines in Portugal, and uh, a number of other wonderful things to eat. Fantastic. And and focusing on the wine of Alentejo, what are we generally talking about here? What is, what is the region kind of best known for in terms of styles and perhaps uh, individual varieties as well? Yeah. So, so it, as you can imagine, being inland and being closer to Spain than it is to the coast, it's warm. It's a very Mediterranean climate in the sense that it gets very hot. Uh, well, I guess it's probably more continental. You know, it gets very hot in the, uh, in the summers. It gets very cool in the winters. And because of this heat um, that's there, in the summer, you can imagine that it's driven by reds and almost 80% of the wine production here is red with the balance being in white. They make very little sparkling wine and they make very little surprisingly rosé wine, although they could. As far as grape varieties go, you know, the challenge with Portuguese grape varieties in general, as, those, as well as those you find throughout collective Iberia, is they don't roll off the tongue. You know, the primary grapes you would find are grapes like Aragonesh, which is the Tempranillo grape. 
uh, in Spain, uh, the Tinto Rorish grape up in the Douro Valley and the largest planting of the grape there. Um, Alicante Boucher would be another one, which is a cross grape between um, Grenache and Petite Boucher, which was developed in France, but settled in Portugal and has done well. For whites, it's a grape called Antal Weich and other grapes like Verbelio and things like that. So nothing that your average wine consumer would probably know, but critically important to the personality of the wine styles uh, made in, in uh, the Alentejo region. Fantastic. And let's talk a little bit about some of those wines in a you know, American context, and in particular, mm-hmm. thinking about the time of year that this episode is coming out, people are perhaps, you know, just finished one major food and wine holiday, but the next ones are right there on the horizon, yeah. uh, be it Christmas, Hanukkah, New Year's Eve, your non-denominational holiday gathering, whatever. Let's talk a little bit about how some of these wines play at the table. And I'll, I'll leave it a little bit broad for, for you, Evan, since you are, of course, the the master in more ways than one here. Kind of pick if you'd if you'd rather talk about an individual uh, variety or style and kind of how it might play at the holiday table, or conversely, I suppose, pick a holiday meal and talk about some wines that might go with it. The floor is yours. Oh, thank you. That what a, what a, what a big open floor to work from. Nevertheless, <laughs> I'm going to try and tackle it from both standpoints because you know some people are food people first, wine people second. Some people are wine people first and food people second. I, I would tell you in general that as you know the weather gets cooler as we hit this time of the year. Um, you know, we, we tend to drink a more red wine than white wine, and we tend to drink wine that warms us up uh, more than anything else. So we sort of probably forego the, the Pinot Noirs and Gamays, although it is Beaujolais Nouveau time, uh, that sort of generally um, happen earlier in the year, and we get into those rustic, heartier red wines too. And, and that's where, of course, the Alentejo thrives, because whether you're dealing like a grape, uh, like Alicante Boucher, which is, I think, their signature red, which is a rich, hearty grape, inky in color, um, deep, uh, buried, brooding, herbal in flavor and all that, that's going to probably appeal to, you know, your sort of big red Zinfandel drinker. It's got obviously a lot of tannin uh, as well, too. That's one of its hallmark things. So it's going to work well at table in the sense that you're going to, particularly if you're a person uh, who eats a lot of roast beef at the end of the year, and I know a lot of us do, um, particularly classic uh, new Christmas Eve and sometimes New Year's Eve meals, it is a particularly terrific wine uh, to go with prime rib uh, or beef of any kind, although it certainly is very happy with pork loins, pork roast, and the local Porco Alentejo, which is that black pig I referred to before. So for those of you who are ham lovers, you're going to be perfectly happy uh, with that wine as well. Um, the blends, and, and let's even though I'm naming specific grape varieties, Zach, most Portuguese uh, red wines in general, and certainly in the Alentejo as well, are blends. So you are going to have some pure Alicante bouchets, but you're also probably more often than not going to have them blended with other grapes. So Alicante might be a signature grape blended with Aragonese or Tempranillo or other grapes like, I don't know, Alfrochero, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And those wines still tend to be hardier, but they're more blended. So think of them more like, uh, you know, rich Rhone wines, whether they're particularly spicy, more like a Northern Rhone, or they're more generous, like a, a Southern Rhone, but they're really good at table. And the, le- the, the, you know, the ones that do not have Alicante Boucher, that are a little less tannic in them, obviously provide a greater range of dishes. So if you're more of a turkey person, um, even if it's not Thanksgiving, or if you're, um, you know, just looking for milder types of fare, that would be great. The whites are also really good. And Anton Weich is the signature for whites um, as the um, Alicante Boucher is for reds. And it's sort of a big, rich wine. It actually is known 
for uh, maintaining its shape and its architecture, despite the fact that the temperatures can get pretty torrid in the Alentejo in the summer, fairly tropical and rich by nature. So if you imagine, again, kind of a, a, a fuller bodied style Chardonnay, but but almost always unoaked, um, and with the tropical flavors that would remind you of something like, uh, a, again, a Southern Rhone style wine, um, chock full of you know, uh, elements of melon and mango, pineapple, um, and then nutty, you know, macadamias, pine nuts, things like that. And that's good with any rich fare. So for those people who are leaning towards lobster and richer shellfish, crab we do oftentimes on New Year's Eve here in San Francisco, um, that's going to be a terrific variety to work with. But I think in general, most importantly, um, Alentejo ones are, you know, even despite at times their girth, uh, they're not over-oaked. Uh, rarely are they over-oaked. Of course, they're over-oaked examples, but rarely would that be the case. And they always have um, wonderful structure. They have strong savory elements to them, and they're terrific at table. I mean, I really consider them to be amongst the most gastronomic of the uh, the wines that are made in Portugal today. And I think an important point to note here, too, before we, we jump off into a slightly different discussion, is that a lot of the wines you're discussing are great at the holiday table, not just because of their pairing potential, but also because, you know, they're relatively um, competitively priced, I mm-hmm. guess you would say. And for those of us who like to let the wine flow for the holidays, uh, that is sometimes a consideration as well. As much as we love to talk about, and we will talk about in a minute, some special bottles, um, having having ample wine for a holiday celebration is also, of course, important. No, very much so. And, and particularly if you're if you're dealing with a larger table, and a lot of us go to these, you know, my my, uh, my wife's family, you know, she's ninth out of 11 children, small holiday gatherings are like 30 <laughs> or 40 people. So you can imagine I show up usually with about a case of wines, and you can be rest assured that Alentejo wines are always going to be in there, not only for their flavor, but to your point too, you know, they, they do represent, um, you know, an over-delivery of taste profile vis-a-vis their uh, cost. Excellent. And I think one other thing I wanted to sort of check in on as regards uh, these wines at the holiday table, in addition to just sort of talking about how they they pair and how they have, in general, sort of these flavor profiles and these um you know, expressions that might be broadly appealing. I was wondering too, you know, Evan, whether it's at this uh, gathering you mentioned at your wife's family or or other settings, is there also something fun about bringing a wine that someone might not have ever tried before to a gathering like this? Oh, most definitely. I mean, I I think that unless you're um, dealing with um, family members, and we do have them who, you know, are fairly, they stay in their lane. They've got two or three wines that they enjoy, and which you always bring a bottle of, and then they're not willing uh, to go out of their um, their proverbial lane and stay in the guardrails, if you will. No, I think the holidays are a wonderful time, particularly if you're considered within the uh, cohort and community of people you're hanging out with to be, for lack of better words, a trusted source. And people go, oh, Zach, he really knows his wine, or Evan, he really knows his wine. They're going to be very open-minded to trying anything that you bring. So this is indeed a wonderful time of the year, not only to be um, uh, experimental and daring, but, you know, to be uh, to be generous, to be uh, altruistic, to share of, of, of mind, uh, mouth, uh, stomach and spirit and turn people on um, to wines they don't have. And that's true everywhere in the world. You know, it's interesting, you know, we had talked um you know, recently about what do Portuguese people do at, at, at the holiday time? And, you know, they have, it's obviously extremely Catholic country and Christmas um, is a deal, is a big deal there. And, you know, they don't go, you know, it, it's more religious probably than it is there, but they do have their 
one celebratory meal, which they call consoada, C-O-N-S-O-A-D-A. And consoada um, is, uh, is renowned uh, on the, you know, the day of, of Christmas. And of course, you know, rather than having roast beef or having ham or something like that, what do the Portuguese eat? Well, they eat cod, of course. So bacalao, <laughs> course. bacalao is, of course, the Christmas table. Some people do octopus too, but usually it's cod. Um, and they have a, an array of wines there. And, and that's one of the funniest combinations of all time, Zach, because here's a fish that is salt cured and then reconstituted. And it's a fairly pungent, strong fish for people, but it actually goes really well with red wine, something I've never quite huh. understood. But for those of you out there who do enjoy your bacalao, whether it's in the form of bacalao, hard, uh, you know, the, the fish itself, or in the French version of Blondot or something like that, actually try it with a red wine, usually one that's more on the angular, sharper, acidic side uh, with more of these herbal components. You'd be pretty shocked how well it pairs. And then, you know, they, they have their desserts too, their big and uh, king cake, bolo rey, which I don't think is the same kind of king cake you get in Mardi Gras, New Orleans, but it is a tradition there. Oh, very cool. Yeah, it's it, that's an important thing to mention too is, you know, I think we talked about this a little bit with the foods, but it's important to remember that, of course, uh, these wines come from a cultural context and that sometimes it can be fun to – if not, go full on. I'm not sure I'll be making octopus for uh, Christmas this year. Uh, I've always been afraid to make octopus because uh, I think you can get it wrong more uh, more easily than you can get it right. But uh, but you know, to at least th- think about those things, be aware of them. I want to I want to sort of switch gears here and talk about another element of this time of year besides uh, conviviality, getting together with friends and family. Of course, gifting is on a lot of minds right now, of course, as well. And while Probably the most common wine from Portugal that's gifted is going to be port. I do know that Alentejo produces, in addition to a lot of um, very delicious and more affordably priced wines, there are some real kind of collectible bottles, some expressions that maybe go beyond the the more standard bottlings. And, and I'm wondering, Evan, if you can give me and our listeners a little insight into that side of the Alentejo wine industry. Yeah, most definitely, Zach. Um, no, this is an area that is really known for, for, for quote unquote table wine. So although as the holidays roll around, many of us are sort of looking for bubbly bottles and looking for those sort of rich fortified ports and Madeiras and things like that that are traditionally enjoyed uh, in the back end of the year. Alentejo is not that place. It's really about, as I said before, red wines primarily and quality white wines as well too. But I think what's really interesting, if you do look at some of the more, for lack of better words, collectible labels uh, that come out of of Portugal today, Alentejo actually has its fair share. Uh, Probably the two most famous in the pantheon of the collector's wines. One is a red wine simply called Mouchao, M-O-U-C-H-A-O. And it's a wine that's made out of Alicante Boucher and ages for literally decades, of which they make a a premium bottling in good years called Tonel, T-O-N-E-L, which people should be on the lookout for. But these are wines of which, you know, their their age worthiness is legendary. In fact, I'm still trying to talk uh, the people at Mouchal when I go over there to open up some of the late 50s wines. Uh, Actually, the 54, the 58, the 59 are considered to be, you know, legendary bottlings over there. And, and, uh, you know, that's pretty old as far as that goes. So anyone who puts these wines away um, will definitely be rewarded down the line. And they're not inexpensive by any stretch of the imagination, but they're certainly um, considered to be, again, as I said before, in the ranks of the collectibles. Another line of wines made by the um, House of Cartusha uh, is a wine called Peramanca, P-E-R-A. 
M-A-N-C-A, and they make both a red version of it and a white version of it. The red one uh, is the one that's, for lack of better words, more heralded, and it's, again, sort of a classic Portuguese red wine blend, Alentejano red wine blend, but again, a wine that is known uh, for its complexity, its age-worthiness, and, you know, is, is sought after uh, by collectors all the time. Having said that, I actually really like the white wine. Perhaps I like the white wine even more than the red. And it um, it ages gracefully like a tremendous white Burgundy does over time. And it's interesting because it's made of grapes uh, that are not particularly grapes that are known for aging. You know, it's made from... Uh, uh, Maria Gomes, uh, Fernand Pires, they go by the same the same name there, and other things which are not necessarily, you know, the grapes that you would expect there, but the combination of them, the way they make the wine, the specific terroir of the plot from which these the uh, grapes are, are harvested make for a killer wine. But, you know, if you can't find those two, and obviously you've got to go out and dig at a fine wine retailer or online by, you know, via a wine searcher or wine bid or something like that. Monte Branco is another one, a red that's really sought after. Dona Maria makes a tremendous red wines that are, you know, um, worthy of keeping and cellaring. And then there's a, a small little producer whose wines I'm a big fan of by the name of uh, Susana Esteban. Um, and she's up in the Porto Alegre area of northern uh, Alentejo, you know, focusing in on on terroir sleuthing, old vineyards, old vine vineyards, centenary vines, and producing just some extraordinary red wines that age for a long time as well. Very cool. And a thing to, uh, that occurred to me when we were having this conversation, and especially you're talking about your uh, sort of interest in having uh, some of those older bottlings is, to what extent do people who are looking at these wines, especially from perhaps a collecting or gifting standpoint, need to think about individual vintages? Is there a lot of variation in Alentejo or, or is it you know, more kind of consistent and predictable in the way that some other uh, European wine regions might not be? Yeah, no, I, I think because of the relatively consistent uh, temperatures, I mean, certainly there's going to be vintage variation and not so much, you know, do things get ripe there? Of course, they get ripe every year. And, the, you know, people in Alentejo worry that they get overripe. So they're really timing that out there. But certain vintages, simply because of the timing of spring weather, of, of bud break, of variation, of, you know, ensuring good temperatures during the course of the, of the season, not getting um, rain right before harvest or on harvest. There's going to be vintage variations there, which is, of course, why, you know, the people at Musha will tell you that this particular three vintages are spectacular. But it's not going to be an, it's not going to be a NASDAQ stock. It's not going to be an up and down uh, you know, quality of vintage here and there, like we used to see uh, in Germany and Austria and places like that pre-global warming, um, but, or I should say pre-climate change, not all places are getting warmer per se, but no, they're pretty consistent. So if you, even if you can't find a well-regarded vintage, you're not going to be disappointed. The, the variances are not dramatic. Well, that's good to know. And I think the last sort of thing I wanted to chat with you a little bit about, Evan, before we wrap things up here is you know, as we look past the holiday season and sort of look into um, 2023 and beyond, I'm wondering, you know, what what is going on in Alentejo? What is changing? Um, it, how are like whether it's younger producers looking to do things a little differently, perhaps different uh, winemaking approaches or, or anything else that might be kind of going on, whether at the surface level or perhaps a little bit beneath it, that that where this region might be shifting or changing in the yeah. next few years? No, excellent questions. Let me, let me take it sort of a macro and we can talk a little micro after that. I think probably one of the things has been sort of on a slow 
uh, slow burn, but 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 pushing in a good way. And I, I don't say burn pun intended, but um, they have an organization called the Wines of Alentejo Sustainability uh, Program, which we actually did an entire podcast on. I think if I recall, my brain's not getting too much to be a sieve there. Uh, but this is uh, its acronym is WASP um, and WASP is, uh, you know, well over. Um, hundreds of members representing a large share of the, the production area. And um, it really is sort of a very holistic, uh, for lack of a better word, sustainable, organic, even some elements of, of biodynamics there because the um, temperatures and such really, you know, it, they don't have um, wet, too much wet weather. So because of that, they can, you know, really do well and excel there. And not only have they been a model growing within Alentejo and, and um, taking on more and more of the Alentejo area under their, their umbrella, but they've been an incredible model for uh, Portugal and indeed for Europe. There's a lot of other um, areas in Western Europe that are studying uh, what's been going on and working hand in hand with the Alentejanos on their um, sustainability program, not just at the sort of environmental level, but also at the social level and even discussing, you know, the sort of financial sustainability elements that more and more wineries and vineyard owners are talking about today, but that's not per se new. Nevertheless, it's evolving, becoming more important and worthy to follow. I think the other thing that's starting to happen uh, is is the tourism boom, you know, and and that's been something that the Portuguese in general, uh, Alentejano is probably not per se, you know, as big of a, a, a hub, the Alentejo region, as Porto is or as Lisbon is, but Portugal is a tiny little country and everything's, you know, an hour and a half away on a train or in a car. So you can actually do it as a day trip out of Lisbon or the Algarve or wherever you may be. And they are witnessing more and more tourists, you know, Evora, the sort of epicenter of Alentejo is a UNESCO world heritage site. It's got tremendous history, Roman ruins, um, and some of the best food you're going to find in the entire country, particularly if you're a fan of comfort food, which I, I am. So you're, so they're getting a lot more tourists coming there, which is good if you need um, places to go and discover it's bad if you're trying to find hotel rooms because it's never really been set up for it, but they are growing there. But I think to your point about grapes and wine, I mean, one thing that's important to understand is that in this world of climate change in which we live, uh, Alentejo is already a warm area. So they're already predisposed to handling um, the uh, upswings in temperature that we already have, grapes that they have uh, invested in uh, historically and over time as they've been planting and replanting, grapes like Alicante Boucher, grapes like Aragonesh, grapes like Anton Weich are, are actually well positioned for warmer weather. I think what you're probably seeing um, most is sort of a movements higher. Um, Alentejo, most of the territory is sort of on rolling flatlands with the, most of the, the flatter areas being uh, kept for, for cork trees, for grain, for cattle, and then anything that's left over being for olives. You know, olive oil is a big deal in, in, in Alentejo and, of course, grapes. But so what they're finding is in the two extremes, the north of the country in Porto Alegre and the south of the country down by Vidiguera, you do actually have um, um, mountains, if you will. And there what they're finding is they're moving up in altitude because very much like our friends in Argentina uh, and other parts of the world have demonstrated that moving higher in altitude is actually a band-aid, uh, probably not long-term, but it's a band-aid, a big, pretty big band-aid for now against climate change because the, you know, it gets cooler as you go higher. Um, um, and you are not necessarily suffering from the same extremes uh, over long term during the course of the day. Uh, your growing season is extended out. Um, your thermal amplitude is better. So you're starting to see more and more of that. And a lot of people are investing time and effort and energy and resources, specifically in Porto Alegre in the north. Even the venerable Symington family that's known for their ports and their dry 
Doro Reds um, invested a chunk of change um, in Porto Alegre and in Quinta de Fonte Soto and are producing some pretty tremendous wines in that part of the world. And, you know, that's sort of uh, the, the canary in the coal mine. A lot of other people are sniffing around and kicking the dirt around there. And as I said as well, in some of the higher um, elevation areas that you do find down in Vidiguera and also moving into the coast, you know, the whole Alentejo Costa area which is perhaps more renowned for its natural beauty. And as you do hit the water, some very um, undiscovered beaches uh, that are, you know, uh, just, you know, for people who do like going to the beach, but don't like to see anybody there. Uh, this is your part of the world that you want to be is the Alentejo coastal area. But they're also finding, obviously, as you move closer to the water and you're getting the Atlantic influence intruding in, um, from the uh, the west coming eastward, that there there might be some cool climate uh, subzones there that are worthy of planning out. So that's just being looked at now, and there are some experimental efforts there. But don't be surprised if you don't hear more about Alentejo coastal wines coming up in the uh, years to come. Awesome. Well, as always, Evan, just a fantastic overview of an exciting and dynamic region with with lots going on. And as you've highlighted here at the end, uh, you know some. Interesting and exciting changes, and of course, as well, still fantastic wines, both for sort of everyday drinking and gifting or special occasions as well. So again, Evan, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Always a pleasure to chat with you and look forward to catching up with you again in 2023. As do I, and and wishing you and all of your listeners a happy holiday season, a safe holiday season, a joyous holiday season, and most importantly, a delicious holiday season. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vine Pair podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington in Zach Chabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair podcast network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.